Hi, everyone. It's Raghu. I am back with Mind Rolling. And I have a very special guest uh, and a very special uh, topic. And Barbara Graham, welcome. Great Hi, to Raghu. meet you. We're just meeting each other for the first time, as is uh, my delight. Uh, Barbara has uh, is an author and has written several best-selling New York Times books and has a, a book that's coming out uh, uh, later, uh, mid-year, towards the midsummer, I think. July. And, yeah, July. Yeah, and you can pre-order it. So once you get an idea of what this is, you'll, you'll want to get it because uh, I loved it, by the way, Barbara. It's, uh, it's called What Jonah Knew, and it's about a child remembering his past life and then that family bumping into the family who had actually lost their child um, many years before that, and he he recalled everything about uh, this uh, this other uh, young boy. Anyhow, it's but you you made a novel out of it, and I just got to tell you, Barbara, I I haven't been reading novels lately. Yeah, mostly, you know, I'm, I also love some of the Buddhist teachers and have been practicing and, and taking in their teachings for a long time. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm like uh, Blazing Splendor. Do you know that book? I don't. Okay, there you who, go. Who, who wrote it? Uh, Mingyur Rinpoche's father. Oh, I, um, oh yes. God, why did his name just slip away? Wait, no. Uh, Toku Ergian. Ergian. Toku Ergian Rinpoche. Yeah, everybody will put a link there because I haven't talked about this book lately. Anyhow, but that's the kind of, it's a spiritual biography of the most incredible uh, meditation master in the last uh, long, long time, 150 years maybe. Anyhow, so why don't you tell us a little bit, how did you even become interested? I mean, you've been doing decades of work and using that, uh, you know, Buddhism and non-dual as a, as a guide for you. How did you even wake up to it? That could be a path. You know, the way this book came into being, it was, I, I don't know, the, the Hebrew word is sort of beshert, synchronicity. Beshert, um, yeah. Beshert, it's, it's a good word. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had been assigned to write a magazine article about past life regression therapy. Um, and so I went and had a session with Roger Wolger, who was a very well-known Jungian psychologist who had had his own past life experience. And so as part of my research, I went to do that. Now, already I, I was already practicing meditation and wasn't completely new to me, the concept I'd always sort of intuited it from mm. childhood. But anyway, I went and did a session with Roger Wolger and um, was kind of blown away. I didn't really expect anything to happen much, but what happened was I immediately flashed into a Holocaust memory. Mm. Um, which was not that surprising to me because as a kid, I, I had a lot of dreams that were similar to this. And then as an adolescent, I read every book I could on the Holocaust. I was pretty obsessed with it. 
And but who knew? I didn't know what was this. Was this a real thing? I I don't know. Um, so I, a few days later, I went and met with my therapist, who you know, I Mark Epstein. Mark, I was yeah. in, I was in therapy with Mark for about six years in New York. Oh, nice. And He's so um, great. Love, love, love. And so I went and I told Mark about this experience. And he handed me, because Mark is not your average therapist, uh, a book by Ian Stevenson mm. uh, called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, which he happened to have in his office. Mm. Um, and I became really fascinated with Stevenson's work. So Ian Stevenson at the time was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia Medical School. And he had a whole endowment to study children who have spontaneous recall of previous lives. And I was utterly fascinated by this from the very beginning. Mm. So that, that, that was percolating. The, the memories of these kids are incredible. I mean, these are kids who typically start talking about a previous life at about two or three. They, sometimes speak in different languages. They may say, you're not my real mom. They talk about when they were big. They have preferences that may not coincide with mm -hmm. those of their families and foods or all kinds of things. And the thing that's most compelling and remarkable is that most of them have a memory of how they died. Um, and, and most of the kids that they studied, there, there are now more than 2,500 children where they really have gone and collected the evidence and all of that. And so, so that, that was percolating at the same time. And then I was also attending a lot of talks, uh, in New York by Tibetan Buddhist teachers, um, Gaelic Rinpoche, so, mm. so Gael Rinpoche, yeah. And, you know, they talked about past and future lives like last Thanksgiving and, you know, yeah. next yeah. whatever, next whatever, 4th of July. And so it all kind of turned into this kind of melting pot in my head. And one day walking down the street in New York, oh, and I was also talking to Gaelic Rinpoche about potentially writing a book with him his book on reincarnation, which as a co-author, and it, for various reasons, it didn't work out, but that was also part of the stew in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then one day, just walking down the street in New York, I had the story. I knew the beginning. Really? I knew the end. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how it was going to get there. And it just came. Mm, that's amazing. Did Gaelic Rinpoche put out a, a book about reincarnation? He did. He, he did. did. Actually, Yeah. There's, okay, we, there's we've a, got we've got to put that in the show notes and link that up. I mean, he, we yeah. had him on a on a podcast as well before he died. Yeah. Uh, so okay, now I want to. We're talking about going back. Okay, we need right. to go back with you to yeah. when you were teenager or even a smaller individual that something triggered in you. I I know you did mention. The, the Holocaust, and you were very interested, and, and of course, coming as a, a Jewish background, 
uh, and you were very interested. And so, you know, there, there's some kind of eventually now that you've been so interested and did this book and, and interested in this work, there, there's a correlation, of course. But can you take us back to your earliest memories yourself? And, and it's what led you to even, uh, like I said earlier, I was um, interested in just the understanding that there is a path to freedom, if we want to put it in, in yeah. non-dual terms. Um, yeah. So, yeah, talk about that formation mm. way, way back when. Oh, it's it's so early and it's a little hard to talk about because I don't think it has words. Um, uh, well, exactly. But a the sense. The difficulty, yes. <laughs> a sense of feeling that there's so much more and that we are not this body, we are not mm -hmm. what we learn to believe ourselves to be yeah. from early age. But, you know, there was certainly nothing in my family life that would have promoted, <laughs> promoted this at all, you know. Um, but it was my, my own sort of kind of spiritual sense from a really young age that we are we are more than we believe ourselves to be yeah yeah and then you pursued this in must as through you know teenagehood and into young adulthood well yeah i i was thinking uh, i love your podcast and i've watched a bunch of them I would have been with you and Ramdas and Mark and Danny Goldman and everybody <laughs> in India, except I, I met this guy, you know, and he, he was an art, <laughs> he was an artist, and I became a back to the land hippie. Um, uh, the rest of you were doing all of that, yeah. Uh, yeah um, otherwise, I would have been in India, but yeah. but you know, I just I I had this sense all along of. We're more than we believe ourselves to be, and everything I've I've ever really wanted to write is really about transcendence and mm. and about that. But also, in the mix with that, it was being into born into a family where fear ruled, um, terror ruled. Mm. Um, so. One were they the in thing, the Holocaust, uh, or the, no, your grandparents? Maybe they were not, but uh -huh. there had to be. But there had to be others. But my grandmother was stoned by the Cossacks in her mm -hmm. shtetl in near Vilna, somewhere in Lithuania, and so there was fear that came in. So what happened in the course of writing this book is. Um, I also write about ancestral trauma. We can get into that, but it, it, there was, I, I feel like my life, it was kind of a, um, my early life, I mean, my sense of the transcendent of loving awareness and my, and the fear. And these two things were kind of in combat. Mm. And, and what I learned in my family was a lot about the fear. And so, in a sense, I feel my work has been to work through and work with that fear. Mm. 
I think we're all in that boat there somehow, Barbara. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they really are. It's not an unusual story by any means. Yeah. Uh, now, tell me about your your work. So you did work with Dr. Jim Tucker, right? I, I Tell me about have, that work. Yeah, I I haven't actually worked with Jim. I'm in touch with Jim, mm-hmm. and um, he's been really supportive of the book and and said that he thinks that it's it's a really good representation of how these cases of, with these kids evolve. Um, so, but, you know, I have read everything Jim has written. I have read everything Ian Stevenson ever wrote and, you know, it sort of funneled it through my consciousness. And I had a recent conversation with Jim a couple of weeks ago and saying, so, you know, how do you think this really works? And they don't know, you know, um, what they believe is that some thread, some aspect of consciousness somehow gets transferred from one life to the next. So, can I tell you my, my, my favorite um, explanation of how, of how the transfer of consciousness might work? And this was from Rupert Spira, uh, who's a teacher who's, uh, I really like, who's incredibly clear. And, and so he talks about our, our one life that we're living as a kind of whirlpool in a stream. And, you know, we circle and circulate around in the whirlpool for a time. And then at a certain point, with death, the whirlpool breaks up, enters the stream until it, you know, it, and flows until it finds itself again in, you know, around some rocks and some and forms another whirlpool or eddy, and and some of what was in the other whirlpool is carried along. But it's not the same. It's not, you're not the same person. When I talked to Jim Tucker, he said, it's not like John Doe becomes Joe Blow. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what is uh, Dr. Tucker's work centrally? He is um, the head. He, so he's the successor to Ian Stevenson uh-huh. at the University of Virginia. He's also a child psychiatrist and his work is following up um, and is in charge of the research. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of their department. I think it's the Department of Personality Studies. Mm -hmm. That's part of the University of Virginia health system. It's part of the medical school. Um, And his work is to continue to follow up with these kids who, you know, parents call up and say, my child is, says that, um, you know, he was a pilot in World War II. And, but some of these kids, and Jim Tucker uh, has written a couple of books himself, and there are some videos 
Um, there was one case of a boy, very young, who drew a picture of an airplane and gave names and, and dates. And he was shot down in World War II as a pilot. And I mean, this kid has gotten been on TV and in the media, but there's there's no explanation for the transfer of memories. And most often, according to Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson, the, the ones who remember usually died suddenly and violently, mm. which makes really a lot of sense to me when I think about it. Because if, if you think about somebody who's 90 and they're kind of, they slip off in the night, there's not going to be that same kind of residue from the whirlpool, perhaps, mm. than someone whose, you know, life is cut suddenly short, is in shock. It's PTSD. These A lot of these mm. kids mm. exhibit signs of PTSD. Yeah, which you're the protagonist in, in your novel, Jonah, def- definitively had. Yeah. So... Everybody who's listening, this, I mean, to some people, sure may sound um, way out there. Uh, Those of us that have either encountered particularly Tibetans in this country or in in the East, that is like uh, as common as as you could possibly get. Uh, uh, Yes, it's true in the East that reincarnation is definitely... Um, part of the fabric of their lives and the culture. So it's a way different thing. Uh, but at the same time, um, like I have uh, met these incredible beings who, who um, you know, are fully aware. Uh, Neem Karoli Baba never talked about it particularly. Mm-hmm. Which, you, know, you all know who we call him Maharaji. But he would say things. Uh, actually, there's a, a film we just finished about one of his closest devotees, K.C. Tiwari, who used to go into deep, deep uh, states of uh, samadhi trance absorption mm-hmm. all the time, either around him or just hanging out with us when he would vi- visit us in, in, <sighs> in, the, in the East Coast uh, the, or in America a couple of times that he did. And so... Uh, one time he said to Maharaji, what are you doing this? Why? I mean, what is this about? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And Maharaji said something like, if you, uh, something like, there's no way to understand that with your, with your head. But basically, we've been together for, 77 i think lifetimes he said some something that is beyond the beyond our whole mind stop which is what happened to us when we did go there and meet him through ramdas and all that uh that was the purpose of that but in that that was it was just an obvious thing so it's very obvious in a certain kind of way over there but even to the point i mean i've met uh, somebody who actually fully remembered and told stories because they were with that he had been with Neem Karoli Baba who had another name Lakshman Das which he uh-huh. had several names and he and he described it and only this person KC Tuari was told by 
Maharaji, the same damn stories, just with little <laughs> flips here and there. So this was like, for us, it was like, yeah, okay. But it wasn't anything we could even think of knowing. There was no knowing. It would happen and you'd have this visceral kind of reaction. Yeah. Um, and you've had that as well. And so, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's as it's, real as anything is real and all can be real. Yeah. And, and sometimes um, parents, even Ian Stevenson said this in an interview in the New York Times, that sometimes parents in India even don't, they don't want to hear about it. They want the child to be Normal. present in their lifetime and now. Um, and I, so when I wrote the characters, Jonah's parents, I really wanted to write um, kind of a couple for whom this was outside, completely outside the box of their understanding of the way life works, the way life and death works, that this was not, it, it was just outside the realm of anything they'd ever encountered. And they looked for every other possible explanation for Jonah's distress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a whole, gee, I don't want to give anything away though. Uh, there, there's a <laughs> whole mystery in there as well. And that's not the mystery of, uh, of, of reincarnation, a, a very practical mystery as to what happened to the, this family's uh, son. So, um, right. Yeah, it's pretty. It, it's very gripping. You, very good. Mm -hmm. very yeah, good. I I so appreciate you doing this because I know mostly, you know, um, it, it it's 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 a novel. It's not nonfiction, and um, but it 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 really is based on some real genuine research. Yeah. And it's it's a great way to digest even the ideas, I think. So yeah, no, it's really quite wonderful that way. And and the reality is that if we, I mean, listen, it's all the mystery, right? There's no way, and you know, scientists are going to poo-poo this because there's no proof, and they haven't. Although they are, he is doing these, has done these studies, I guess, from Dr. Stevenson to Dr. Tucker. They are ongoing. I have had, yeah. um, uh, I've done several podcasts. And Ramdas himself was very interested in uh, NDEs and what happens. It's, it, we did this film with him, and the director asked him, um, called Becoming Nobody. Uh, he said, I've uh, seen it. Yeah. He said, yeah. Well, are you um, looking forward to death? Ramdas said, no, I'm not looking forward to death. What happens after? Yeah. yeah. And so he was very, very interested. And I had a couple of people on who, I, the, just the, um, the reality that ensues with people who have near-death experiences and come back and the commonality of all, just like these children, where, you know, some people go, well, it could be ESB, you know, somehow they're just picking up on stuff, whatever, you know, there's a lot of people like that. But then having the actual uh, 
birthmarks with the wounds, that's a little different. Yeah. You know, that stumps people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What did he I find? Mean, yeah, the birthmarks are amazing. And that was something Stevenson really focused on because they seem to coincide with the wounds at the time of death yeah. and related to the manner of death. So these birthmarks in kids. And so, jo I mean, Jonah has one in the book. Um, I mean, the evidence is so compelling. And, you know, what Stevenson said, and I can't quote it perfectly, but something along the lines of, you know, science it, science has to catch up. Science hasn't yet caught up with... Um, science believes what is so... Um, but, ha, you know, that there's a gap. I guess the Tibetan Rinpoche in the book also says the same yeah. thing, yeah. that there's a gap between what science is able to demonstrate in controlled clinical studies and what's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, His Holiness and, is working on that with Richie Davidson and all these other guys. So, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, they're already proving out, you know, the, amazing. the reality um, of truth. Uh, yeah, amazing work. Yeah, yeah, it completely. So, um, uh, I did pick up some uh, stuff that I found, um, particularly an interview with uh, Dr. Stevenson. I'm sure you're very, very, very familiar with it. And, and so one of the things that struck me was his story about the twins in Sri Lanka. Do you remember that story? Um, vaguely. Okay, do you want... How vaguely. About I, Why don't you tell... I'll, I'll yeah. read it. And yeah. then we can... Because it is very uh, far out. So, yeah, he uh, was invest. He's been investigating for many years and... He went to Sri Lanka. He said, we did testing that showed these twins in Sri Lanka were identical, yet they were markedly different in their behaviors and physical appearance. One twin began to talk about a previous life as a Sinhalese insurgent, said he was shot by police in April 1971. But his family laughed at him, so he shut up and nothing could be verified about what he said. The older mm -hmm. twin talked copiously about the previous life of a young schoolboy. He made several specific statements that ultimately checked out. He said he lived in a place called Balapitaya and traveled by train to a school in another town called Ambalagodlangoda. He made comparisons between the family's property. He referred to an aunt by name who had cooked chilies for him Perhaps the most astonishing thing was that when the two families met, which is just a core of your book, right? That That's really the big time fun part, I thought. Uh, the boy pointed to some writing in a wall that turned out to be the name of the deceased boy he was remembering. The subject said he had made that when the cement was wet. No one in the deceased boy's family had noticed it before. That's pretty far out. It's really far out. The details yeah. that these children recall are so specific and so clear that they have no earthly way of knowing. It's hard to attribute their knowledge 
to anything else. One thing I find really interesting, and that's an amazing case. I, yeah. I, rem- I do remember it yeah, well. Yeah. Um, but one thing that's really interesting is that the memories tend to fade by the time the kids are about seven or eight years old. Um, and that, that sort of makes sense. They embrace the present life. They move into yeah. the stream, you know, the whirlpool where, where they are. And the other one kind of trickles, trickles away. It's, it's like other kinds of childhood memory or other, and other kinds of memory that over time just kind of fades mm. away. Um, so I find that really interesting. Yeah. So he was asked, I'm, I'm just looking at this transcript. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. Uh, what, what troubles him about his work? Did you no. ever meet him, by the way? Or? I didn't. No. I tr- I didn't. I was. I tried, and I was unable to. Mm. Um, Jim Tucker has been very uh, forthcoming and supportive. I think it was toward the end of Stevenson's life when I reached out, and uh, it just wasn't possible. Mm. So they asked him, uh, "Well, what's what's the most prob- problematic thing?" And uh, he and it's the families because it's I can see this in India particularly, where uh, you know some notoriety happens, the word gets out even in the village, and then people are all wow we got to, you know yeah. so they start um, uh, he calls it enthusiastically credit the child with more correct statements than the child actually <laughs> made, uh, and um, he said getting to them before. This the families realize maybe that they have something of value, you yeah. know, in one way or another. That's that's pretty amazing too. And I guess yeah, and India it would all or in the East because of the uh, belief in reincarnation, it would all um, be a bit of a different kettle of worms, so to speak, because there is a way that um, there's a pride in terms of their culture and their religion. And mm-hmm. then there's a way in which uh, if this really uh, flourishes in, in the individual, I would imagine that it, that would be a very difficult way to live. And that is, talk about how you formulated that actually in the book with Jonah. Yeah. Where life um, was very difficult for him. Life was hard for him. It was hard for him. It was really hard for his mother. And so much of the book really deals with motherhood also and sort of the mother-son bond and connection. And this was the last thing both that both of Jonah's parents would think of, but his mother found it extremely threatening. So she went through a whole thing of attributing his PTSD symptoms to ancestral trauma Mm. because she had, her grandmother's family had been killed at Auschwitz. So, Mm. and, and, and there's so much incredible research 
uh, some of which I touch on in the book about inherited family trauma and how we carry that with us. Um, and so she wants every other possible explanation for, I mean, it doesn't even occur to her. And, and when finally, I mean, you know, Jonah is recognizing all this stuff about Henry, this young man whose life he remembers in Henry's home with Henry's mother, it sends both of these women into quite a tailspin because how how do you, as a, as a parent, you believe your child is yours. Your child belongs to you, your one and only precious being. And so Lucy, Jonah's mother, becomes very threatened by the idea of her son saying he has another mother. What? Really? Yeah. Which a lot of which a lot of these kids do. Yeah, and really and Helen, the mother of the missing young man, who Jonah remembers, you know, doesn't know what to think about it. And, you know, she's not getting, even if Jonah has some memories of her son, she's not getting her kid back. Yeah. So a lot of the book also kind of revolves and turns on this um, bonds of love between mothers and children, in this case, mothers and sons. Yeah. You know what I love, though? The, the, the dog part that I, you saw. I, I know. Oh, my dog got out of camera range. But, uh, the f yeah, I mean, the intuitive nature of, of, of animals is, like, way beyond. And, and it's really perfectly represented in, in this is where this is where there's you know some fiction comes in because I don't think Jim Tucker or Ian Stevenson have ever encountered or at least they've never written about in any of their research um, dog memories. But the dog is, and I, I didn't even know this was going to happen. That's the fun thing about writing fiction. Mm. Shit happens uh, <laughs> that you're that's completely yeah. unexpected. I, I mean, this book, I have to say, pulled me along and told me what to do one day from the next. I mm. I, I don't know, hmm. you know, and the dog was a piece of that. Um, the dog really is kind of the hero of the book in, in a certain way. And. You know, as Jonah says, dogs know stuff people don't. Yeah, and uh, so I, I, <laughs> I never stopped to think. Oh, wait a minute, this is a fiction, so maybe that didn't happen, or has not been proved to right. have been accounted for by any of these children. Yeah. I totally believe it because <laughs> I, I really know mm -hmm. that they know stuff that we don't. Period. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I, not to diverge too much, but I did a podcast just uh, with uh, a woman who has a wolf 
an wild mm-hmm. animal sanctuary off of mm-hmm. Yellowstone and mm-hmm. raises wolves and raised mm-hmm. one of them who seemed to want to spend, you know, they're usually alone, you know, they, I mean, in terms of humans, but this one wanted to spend time with them. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the reality is that they had a, a, a room full of people in a sort of retreat around connecting back with nature and nice. uh, and so on, you know. So they thought they that this one wolf they would bring in. So uh, her partner who manages, mm. not manages, who is the trainer, and they, he does it for films and so on, of wolves, has a certain ESP with them that is is as real as you and I talking right now. Mm-hmm. And he said to the wolf, you don't have to, because the wolf was a little bit tentative of going inside that, that uh, whatever it was, Hogan or something. And he said, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Uh, there is, you know, he, <laughs> with his connection with this animal, but then the animal straightened up, ears back mm. up, went into the Hogan, and where there was a circle of people who were told, just sit there quietly and mm-hmm. be with your true self, shall we say. That dog, dog, that wolf went to each one of these people and communed with them for Aww. a few seconds. Aww. Okay. So, yeah, this is as believable as anything, that whole yeah. experience. Oh. I, 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 loved, I, loved, I loved that dog in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie. Yeah, me too. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, talk a little bit about, because I think it's an important subject as well, ancestral uh, mm. trauma and collective karma, which yeah. is part of that as well. Yeah. So while I, I conceived of this book a very long time ago, like I said, I was, I was walking down the street in New York. This was in the 90s. Um, and I did a lot of other stuff in between. And in many ways, it, it was kind of a scary book to write, but for many reasons, uh, as the mother of a son, um, working with my own fear, uh, was a piece of it. But so the ancestral trauma, the inherited family trauma, while I was working on this book, um, and this was more recently, I was helping a friend named Mark Wolin, who uh, was writing a book called It Didn't Start With You. He's a therapist trained by, um, what, what's his name? Hellinger, Bert Hellinger, mm-hmm. who I don't know if you know his work, mm-hmm. but he's German, a, a former priest who has developed a system of working with family trauma um, and originally out of the Holocaust, uh, families that were affected by the Holocaust. Mm, But so, so um, where, you know, it's a group of however many people and, and some people represent family members It's very powerful, powerful work that happens on an energetic level. So Mark does this work. He also had had trained and worked with Roger Wolger, who I did the 
Holocaust, who I did that past life regression thing with. Anyway, so I was helping Mark with his book, which has since become, and you might want to put this out also, it's mm. called It Didn't Start With You. Um, Mark Wolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N, wrote it. And so that that's his work, is working with people, working through ancestral trauma. And he's had remarkable experience. There's a lot of stories in the book about um, people making real shifts in their lives once they realize that what they're carrying really is coming not from them, not necessarily from their parents, but passed passed down from other family members um, and and often trauma. Um, People who've been murdered, killed, people who have been murderers. I, I mean, the stories in his book are incredible. Anyway, I was helping Mark with he had a he had a contract, or I was, actually I was helping him get his book ready to sell, and so I was plunged into this world of ancestral family trauma and all that research, which is extraordinary research. Um, done. Uh, there's a woman at. Um, Mount Sinai in New York named Rachel Yehuda, who has worked with children of Holocaust survivors and their nervous systems, their stress levels are very different, very particular uh, studies. Some studies have shown that we carry at least three generations mm. of really? trauma from, from of ancestral trauma. I just read a new study that came out in January of the Tutsi women in Africa who were pregnant during the horrible, horrible, genocide. Um, yeah, genocide. And this was in 93 or 94, I think. And the children of these women compared to the children of other Tutsi women who were not present during the genocide, uh, the, the trauma that they carry is markedly, is, is remarkable. This was just reported um, in January. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's, it's the study of epigenetics, how we, you know, how our DNA code is not changed but the way our DNA is expressed is influenced by ancestors. Mm-hmm. I think we personally, I think we all carry, you know, strains of this from, from long ago, the collective, you know, I mean, I think as a Jew and, and in many other cultures, um, we we carry the collective trauma of our ancestors, but these are very specific cases. So, when I was writing the book, um, I was also helping Mark with his book, and somehow it just filtered in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, some of it is not as traumatic in my experience. It can be just someone who. Um, 
has trouble with weight and food is a extraordinarily mm-hmm. important more than a, a, say in a quote unquote normal person and yeah. that may well come from a family that was poor that didn't have enough or was had to hoard whatever they had you know right. all of this concern around that right uh, although not seemingly like a trauma like uh, the Holocaust or right. what happened uh, in uh, Africa or what has happened over the last <laughs> gazillion years or, to or so many different cultures or what's, what's happening, happening right, now. right now in Ukraine. And I think about these children being yeah. born now and, and their descendants, what they're going to carry yeah. I mean, and, and it's true in Burma. It's true everywhere. It's extraordinary when you start to think about it. Huh? I I, mean, I know. So so Lucy in the book, Jonah's mom, uh, attributes his symptoms, his PTSD and anxiety to the, to that to that ancestral mm. trauma. Because I wanted to create, you know a pathway for them, this family, to figure out what's going on with this kid. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Stevenson at one point was asked by the interviewer, I guess, because um, if reincarnation was more widely accepted, um, how would it change the world? Um I, yeah, let's get your response and then I'll tell you what he said, if you may not remember. <laughs> I know this, I, I know this and I've used this quote, so I oh, know yeah. it well. Okay, and, and I actually wrote, just wrote an essay about it. Um, parents, mm. it would get parents off the hook <laughs> a little bit. Um, it would make parents not feel so guilty that everything that happens to their child is the result of their behavior, their neglect, or, you know, they didn't breastfeed long enough or they yelled at their kid or, you know, in some way it, it's, it's very freeing, but in order to achieve that freedom, you also then would have to acknowledge that your child is not exactly your own position child in the way you would like to believe so it's kind of a a, a, a an opening but yeah uh, definitely there are children have experiences and feelings and reactions that their parents are not responsible for creating mm. um, there's something beyond nature and nurture that and this is I think Stevenson referred to it as sort of the third way or the third factor. And also, how about just if that truth be uh, in any way embraced by people, suddenly perhaps there's less of walking around with this great fear of the mystery. Yeah. There's a little bit of, okay, maybe, you know, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, as, especially as one 
follows on a, a spiritual path where the ideal would, of course, be to get out of this me me land that we are in on a day to day basis, God, yeah. yeah, and and be able to do something for people around us and and all of that. Perhaps reincarnation yeah. or the con the not it can't be just the concept. I mean, uh, reading this mm-hmm. book and doing this podcast, you know, hopefully people are going to take away. Well, maybe there is some truth here. This can't be just all BS. You know, and from from there, start to embrace the mystery in a much more uh, profoundly spacious way instead of uh, fear. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it is a mystery, and I think it really does have the potential to reduce fear. And I, I know for me, I held both of these things. I think I said that before growing up. I was terrified of death. I was terrified of everything around dying. And I knew there was more at the same time. And I think the fear really came in in a familial sort of way and mm-hmm. took over my my body. I mean, yeah. I heard uh, Joseph Goldstein a couple of years ago talk at Spirit Rock. I live about two miles from Spirit Rock. Oh, um, lucky you. I know. And I heard Joseph a few years ago, and he was talking about fear and about how he recognized, okay, I've, you know, it's, it's not going away. Um, I've been practicing for how many decades? It's not going away. So, you know, make, befriending and mm. being with. Mm. And um, what else is there? What else is there to do? Um, yeah. To be with the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah. The 100,000 beautiful visions and the 100,000 horrible yeah. that are there. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the um, the last thing, though, that Stevenson said when he was asked about how, how could reincarnation, if it was accepted, change the world. But he said... Um, on my first trip to India, I met a respected Indian monk, a Swami. I told him I had come out to see what evidence there was in India for reincarnation. He remained silent for a long, long time. Then he said, we here in India regard it as a fact that people are reborn. That's a broad statement, by the way, and I'm, I'm sure we could have gotten into it with the Swami about what, you know, it's not like, as you said earlier, this isn't, oh, yeah, hi, it's me, I'm back. <laughs> Yeah, right. uh, but you see, it doesn't make a difference because we have just as many rogues and villains in, in <laughs> India as you have in the West. I love that. Yeah. That's so great. And yeah, I one I just thought of one experience I had actually was uh I there was a a week of teachings by His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Washington a number quite a number of years ago. And I was there with Sharon Salzberg, I'm sure. A, a, a dear a, friend. Another friend, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and others, Krishnadas and other friends. Anyhow, she was invited to see the 17th Karmapa up in his hotel suite to just visit. So we went up there. I had had uh, a um, darshan, whatever the thing is in Buddhism, for the, being in the presence of the 16th Karmapa mm. uh, in, before he died. So I was 
you know, and I knew about the 17th and how much he looked like. Talk about <laughs> reincarnation. He actually looked like his predecessor. And he used to make a joke about it. Well, I look pretty much like him, eh? I guess he'd <laughs> say things like that. Very, very down to earth. Anyhow, we were just talking about nothing like America. And he had come over. He had been there once before. And there was no teachings or anything going on. And then, But anyway, it was a lovely half hour. Mm -hmm. And then we put the sacred uh, mm -hmm. kata, the silk scarf, and he put it on and, and he grabbed my hands and, and he said, you know, thank you for coming. Just simple. When mm -hmm. he did that, and I had the kind of closeness to the molecular vibrations that we were exchanging in the moment, I my thought was, holy shit, this is what comes, this is the thing that, comes from one incarnation to another it has nothing to do with anything but the some essential deep 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 uh, presence mm -hmm. and in this case because uh i mean you're talking about the 17th the 16th karmapa was one of uh, you know the great siddhas of the last 150 years he was a yeah. he was like neem karoli a being that was beyond polarity and there's very few of the and whatever essence that I had experienced in him, I, ex I experienced with this young man. He was like around 30 years old or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I mean, it all just reinforced, yep, okay, I'm good. Yeah. It, it's really helpful to remember to try to hold the longer view because it's so easy, you know, to shrink... <laughs> To shrink the view and get caught up in the story yeah. and the crisis du jour or yes. whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the, the longer view, and I, I think the characters in the book, I, 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 there is some degree of awakening about what happened yeah. because how else can you explain it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful book. But I'm everybody. You. I am sure. I'll even put the cover up here. Yeah. I am sure that you can pre-order this book on Amazon, oh, yeah. which will be good for Barbara and the <laughs> publishing. Who's publishing it, Mark? Harper Collins. Harper. Yeah. Um, in terms, which is of, to me is amazing, because yeah, it's that they're sort doing of, something like this. It's sort of so out of the box, um, but I think because it's really framed like a psychological thriller. Yeah, um, yeah. and it that, has that it it has accessibility that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we'll have all of it available, connected through uh, the show notes on beherenownetwork.com/slash/mindrolling, and so the links and Barbara's work and uh dr stevenson dr tucker i'm naming these so you guys that do the show notes so please make sure that they're there and uh and other mm -hmm. wonderful mentions in there of uh, interesting people to pursue so thank you thank you barbara thank you really this was very fun and lovely to talk to you yeah oh, thank you yeah. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week on the Be Here Now Network. Go to the Be Here Now Network 
www.thepeopleshow.com. And some of the people that we've been talking about, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, have fantastic uh, podcasts. And in Sharon's case, she has been talking to some exceptional people lately. So, yeah, check her out. Check Alan Watts out. Remember Alan Watts, Barbara? I do. I read The Way of Zen when I was 13. Yeah. Well, (laughs) his son has uh, this wonderful archive of his work, and we put them together as podcasts. Oh, great. Check it out. Yeah. That's great. I will. I will. Sure. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. And we shall see you again, everybody, next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.